You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Okay, I'm going to invite you back to your seats if you want to grab the last of the pastries and find a chair. We're going to be in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 is where we'll be. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab one and open to Ephesians chapter 1. On your way in, we were handing out these Ephesian scripture journals so that we can use this throughout the series. It's a great way for you to take notes and have this as we go through the series over the next several months. And so feel free to grab one. If you don't have one, feel free. They're on the table as you walk in. Go grab one. Also, if you don't own a Bible, we have these hardback black Bibles over here at the table that we'd love for you to take as a gift. And so feel free to take that home. Have a copy of God's Word in your hands. And if you're in uh, the hardback black Bible, it's on page 976. So Ephesians 1, 1 through 2. Well, before you can build a house, you need to lay a good and strong foundation. And if you do not do that well, then the house will be compromised. No matter how nice the rest of the house is, million-dollar house, the rest of the house is compromised if the foundation is not good. Foundations are invaluable to buildings. In fact, I read this week that the tallest building in the world, the Burj Khalifa, it took them over a year to lay the foundation, just the foundation for that building. And Jesus uses this imagery of foundations in Matthew chapter 6. He compares a man who builds his house on a rock with a man who builds his house on stand. And so as we started to think about what what do we want to preach on coming out of the launch, and as we replant as a church, we wanted to go through a book of the Bible that would lay the foundation of faith for us together, which is why we chose the book of Ephesians. It's not a long book in our Bibles. In fact, it's just five pages in my Bible, but it is, in many ways, one of the most succinct explanations, one of the most clear explanations of what we're meant to understand about our faith in Jesus, who we are, and then also how we apply that to our lives. And so today, we're going to look just at the first two verses, just the introduction. And you might not think the introductions are very interesting, but it's my hope to convince you that here in the introduction, it will set the tone for us for the rest of of the letter. And so Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 is where we are. If you want to stand as we read God's word, I invite you to do that if you're able. You can follow along and I'll read this. And after I finish reading the text, I will say, This is the word of the Lord in recognition that this is God's word. And I'm asked you to just say in response, Thanks be to God, as an expression of our gratitude for God's word. And so the scripture says this Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat as I pray. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us as your people, and I pray now that we would understand it. God, we know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will last forever, and so we need your help. God, by your spirit, would you open our eyes that we would behold the wondrous things found here in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. In 1923, the much-anticipated Second Imperial Temple in Japan opened. It is well-known architect Frank Lloyd Wright's most well-known structure that was built in all of Japan. And what could be seen above ground is, of course, stunning and memorable, beautiful. But today, I want to talk about what was underground, what what you could not see. Because of the frequency of earthquakes in Japan, Wright had designed a unique and 
kind of um, inventive foundation for this hotel. His theory was that if they built the foundation shallow but with broad footings, then it would float on the alluvial mud like a battleship in the ocean during an earthquake. And so it was this brilliant, inventive plan. And when this great Kanto earthquake hit Japan, not long after the hotel opened, this hotel famously survived. A telegram got sent to Wright from Japan, and it read, Hotel stands undamaged as a, mon- as a monument to your genius. Hundreds of homeless provided by perfectly maintained service. Congratulations. When you're going to install a foundation for a building, one of the factors that you need to be aware of are the soil conditions. What are you building in? Wright used the soil conditions here to his advantage. And whether you're building in clay or in peat, whether silt or sand, you need to know the way that the soil is going to impact the foundation. And throughout the series in Ephesians, we're going to be laying the foundations of faith, but today I want to talk about the soil conditions. And when I say soil conditions, what I'm talking about are the kind of context, our identity, the future hope that we have, and who is guiding us along the way. And so we're going to do this with some of the clues we get right here in these first two verses from the introduction. And Kind of a summary of what we're going after today in the sermon is that the soil conditions change how we set our foundation stones in place. Soil conditions change how we set our foundation stones in place. Or said another way, just understanding who we are and where we are will make a massive difference about how we build faith in our lives. And here's our outline together. We're going we're to talk about three needs that we have as we begin. The first is that we need a qualified guide. Second, we need a clear identity. And third, we need a future hope. So first, we need a qualified guide. The first two verses here of this letter, they are a fairly common template for a greeting of this day. It's, there's an introduction from the sender, there's a clarifying of the recipient, and then there's this sort of greeting that comes afterward. In this case, the sender is the Apostle Paul. He is going to be our trusted and qualified guide as we build this foundation. And Paul was a brilliant man. He studied with the best. Today, he would be like a Harvard Law School graduate who clerked under Chief Justice Roberts and was an expert in the law. He's well-connected. He's impeccable in his conduct. He's zealous for his religion. In fact, he was so committed to his Jewish faith that before he became a Christian, he was persecuting them, other Christians, to the point of imprisonment and even death. And one of the great miracles in the Bible is how this man is radically changed. He went from being known for his persecution to becoming one of the most influential Christians in the history of the world, which is why he says that he is an apostle by the will of God. Paul did not choose God. God chose him. And here's how that happened. The story is recorded three times in the book of Acts, chapters 9, 22, and 26. Paul's on this road from Jerusalem to Damascus, and he's on his way to imprison Christians there. And on the road, he is blinded by this great great light. He falls to the ground, and the risen Christ confronts him for his persecution, calls him to repentance, and then commissions him as a messenger. And Paul knows that he is an apostle by God's initiative and God's will. We're not reading the mail from some random guy in the first century. This isn't just ancient literature to go on the shelf next to Homer and Aristotle. These are the writings of God's commissioned apostle. And by God's Spirit, He has not only commissioned Paul to become a mouthpiece to the Gentiles, but He inspired the words of the letter so that we can say that the words of 
Paul are not just his words, but God's word. What Paul wrote, God wrote. To be one of the early apostles, you needed to have witnessed the risen Christ. Paul, he was late in coming to this particular qualification, right? He did not walk with Jesus before his death and resurrection, but Paul saw the risen Christ on that Damascus road. He was a witness. And to be an apostle also then meant that you were sent as a messenger. In fact, the word apostle means sent one. And that is what Paul is doing here in the letter. He is giving witness to the revelation of Christ that he has received. He is now sharing that revelation with others. And this is something that we do fairly naturally as humans. If we witness something that's great, we experience something great, we tell other people about it. This happened to me recently when I came across this kid's show called Bluey. It was made in Australia. It's made its way to the States. And as a parent, it's great because my kids love it and my wife and I also enjoy it. After seeing it, I started telling all the parents I knew about this wonderful show because it's incredibly hard to find a kid's show that isn't totally annoying to us as adults, right? If you're a parent, you know what I mean. I just cannot watch any more PJ Masks or Daniel Tiger. But in order to help parents everywhere, right, not tear their hair out, I felt responsible to tell them about Bluey. And while parents finding a show that is tolerable to watch with your kids might feel like a big deal, it's really not, right, at the end of the day. But what Paul has witnessed, death to life sort of stuff, this is a big deal, something that is worth telling others about. And that's what Paul's doing here. One of the great things about this letter that we're going to study together is that it is not written in response to any particular conflict. So many of Paul's letters are written in response to something having happened. In Philippians, it's fairly positive. He's writing to say thank you for all of their support. In Galatians, he's writing to them to help resolve conflict between ethnic Jews and their Gentile brothers and sisters. First and second Corinthians, there's just too many things to list, right? They were a bit of a mess in Corinth. And this is a good reminder, right? The New Testament church had its problems too. And in this letter, though, this letter to the Ephesians, Paul is not responding to a specific problem or a specific situation, but he does give us a purpose statement in chapter 3. And so if you want to turn your Bibles one page quickly, he writes in verse 3 of chapter 3 that the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. Paul, throughout the letter to the Ephesians, he's going to use a lot of this language of mystery and revelation. There was a reality that in many ways was hidden from view. It's as if there were key foundation stones for faith that needed to be uncovered. And I wonder if you ever feel like that. Like sometimes the key to life feels like a mystery. Like there's something about this life that you're just missing. You're struggling to find your way. You sense that there's more to be discovered, but you just can't quite figure it out. If you feel that way, you're not alone. And here's what Paul is saying. The mystery was made known to him by revelation, and he wants to tell you about it. That's the point of the letter, as he says in verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. If you want to understand the mystery of this life, if you want to build a strong foundation of faith that will endure the storms and the earthquakes that come, then you need a qualified guide. You need someone who you can trust, who knows the way. You would never build a house without someone there to read the blueprints, right? And make sure that you are following the intended design. Well, Paul has the blueprints, and he's going to give us the design. 
Now, you can find all sorts of people today willing to be your guide. Anyone with a phone and an internet connection will try to be a social media influencer, right? To try and get you to follow their TikTok page or follow their Instagram stories, and they'll give you their wisdom about how to have a meaningful life. And you'll see all these loads of articles on blogs with titles like Six Secrets to Success or Nine Ways to Build a Life that Others Will Want or Five Steps to Inner Peace. There are many guides in the world. But you have to ask yourself which guides you want to trust. Who is qualified to tell you about the mysteries of the world? Well, in our case, as we build the foundations of faith together, we have chosen to listen to a man who was radically changed in his life because he came into contact with the risen Christ. And he has wisdom that was delivered by God and words inspired by God's Spirit. And so, if you feel lost at times in life and faith, we have a guide. And in Paul, we're going to learn from him about these foundations of faith. The second thing that we need is a clear identity. So after Paul introduces himself as an apostle, he addresses his readers, and the way he does will help us to clarify our identity in Christ. Last week, I asked you a question. I asked you, what do you think comes into the mind of God when he thinks about you? Now, that might sound like a narcissistic question, And it could be maybe if taken the wrong way, but it's not in the end because the way you answer that question will say a lot about how you view God. Now, I hope you grabbed one of those Ephesians journals on the way in, or at least you have a journal of some kind. I'm actually going to ask you to take a moment and write down a couple of words that come to mind when I ask that question. What comes into the mind of God when he thinks about you? So go ahead, write write down a few words. What comes to your mind when I ask that question? sorry. Well, I wonder what words you wrote down or what words are coming to your mind. Some of them might be positive, others negative. Some might cause pride, others are in response to shame, and still others are rooted in your identity in Christ. And here's the reality. Many of you know what you should write down, but that's not always what you think in your mind and in your heart. And today, I want to talk about our identity. If we want to understand the soil conditions that we're about to build a foundation on, one of the things we need to know is who we are. And even more importantly, what does God say about who we are? Well, one of the first words that Paul uses to describe his readers is saint. Now, when we use the word saint, um, he probably doesn't mean it, or when he uses the word saint, he probably doesn't mean it the way that we think he might right? Or in the words of Inigo Montoya in The Princess Bride, I do not think that word means what you think it means. (laughs) See, because we're so impacted by our English use of the word as the title for a dead man, man or woman who is especially faithful in their following of Jesus. That's not what Paul had in mind, though. That's not how he used the word. And one of the things that we need to do as good Bible readers is ask ourselves what a word meant to the original author. And often that requires us to consider, well, where did he get the word from? And in this case, the word saint is a word that Paul got from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it simply means holy ones. Holiness is an attribute of God 
first and foremost. And when he, has, when he called Israel to be his people, he wanted them to be holy as he is holy. And so in Exodus twenty-two thirty-one, after God rescued his people from Egypt, he said that he's going to make his people holy to himself. Saint or holy ones is a word that God used for his people. And so as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, both Jews and Gentiles, he's calling them to be holy ones, God's people. What comes into the mind of God when he thinks about those who are in Christ is saint, holy one, my people. That is so important for you to internalize this identity because here's what can happen. When you start to test the conditions of the soil, when you start to evaluate whether God can build there. You start digging and you get to a spot and you determine that this is a no-build zone. And here's what we have a tendency of doing as people. We look at ourselves and we decide that our identity is based on what other, has, other people have said about us, how they've defined us. We decide that our sexual sin has created such inhospitable soil that God cannot build there. Or we decide that because of our body shape or our income or our intelligence, we're not worth much to the kingdom and that we think God wouldn't want to build in all this, that is the soil of our life. So we make all sorts of decisions about our identity, and we declare these no-build zones, but that is not what God has to say about us. That is not the identity that he has given us in Christ. There's no area of your life that is too broken or too messy that God cannot change. Through the work of God's Spirit, through the fellowship of God's people, through word, prayer, and song, God will till the soil. He will turn a no-build zone into a place where he grows strong and healthy and mature versions of us, dear saints. So let me just say this. Don't let your brokenness, your idolatry, or your sin define you. That is not your identity. If you are in Christ, then you are a saint. If you have areas of your life that God is still working on, don't give up because you feel like it's taking too long. Keep tilling the soil. Let God continue to bring into reality what has already been declared about you in Christ. You are a saint, a holy one, set apart by God as one of his people. And God wants to build a strong foundation of faith in your life. Let me say just two other things about Paul's readers. First, he says that these saints are in Ephesus. And here's why that matters. Because your context matters for the soil conditions, right? You need to know your situation in life because it impacts how you see the world and how you grow in the world and how God intends to work on your heart. In this case, in the case of this letter, Paul is not just writing to one church in Ephesus. He's writing to all the churches in the region. The letter would go to all sorts of house churches throughout the city of Ephesus, and then it would be copied and passed on to all sorts of churches and villages and towns throughout the region. It's named for Ephesus because Ephesus was the most influential city in the region. It was a port city located along several trade routes. It was also the center of several different cults. It was the home of the temple to Artemis, which is one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was also the center of the cult to Caesar. Ephesus also had two major marketplaces and a significant theater. It was a center for culture and industry and economics. And so Paul wrote to a group of Christians who had massive cultural pressures to worship something or someone other than God, whether through the temptation of economic gain and materialism, 
or the temple worship of other gods or the sexual practices associated with these cults, there were many reasons for them to forget their identity and just go with the flow of culture. Do you ever feel like the cultural pressures are too strong? Like it's just exhausting, feeling like you're always swimming upstream. I can imagine the Ephesians would be able to relate. And here again, I want to push against our tendency to decide what God can and cannot do in the soil in which we're building. For some of you, you might be focused on all the do not build here signs that exist for the soil in the culture around us. You might have determined that God cannot have an impact on your neighbor or on the Northeast neighborhood where our church now calls home. You may have decided that racial conflict is just too significant to overcome or the sexual ethic is just too hard to resist or that we lack too much compassion as people and you're ready to just give up on your neighbors or on the neighborhood. But there's no soil that is too toxic for Jesus to redeem. So we have to evaluate the soil conditions. We need to know the assumptions and the idols of our culture that influence us, but never believe that those things are too strong for the Lord to overcome. The second thing that Paul has to say about these saints is that they are faithful in Christ Jesus. And the word faithful here is less about the sense of endurance than it is about belief and trust, even if that trust is imperfect trust. The reason that they are saints is because they are believers in the Savior, Jesus Christ. Their belief in Jesus makes them into saints. Like Paul, they did not choose God, he chose them, and it is their faith in Christ that has saved them. Faith in Jesus is what grants us the identity that we've been describing together. And now we come to this third need in this final part of the greeting. We need a future hope. Paul writes at the end of this greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's kind of trademark greeting. It's used in other letters in a very similar way. And rather than just saying greeting at the end of this, which was common in a lot of other letters of his day, Paul gives this invocation and this prayer on behalf of the recipients. He wants two things for them, grace and peace. If we're going to build a strong foundation, then we need to know that we have a future hope. We need to know that this investment is going to be worth something. And that's what we find in these words, grace and peace. Grace is a common word for Paul to use in his writings. In fact, in this letter alone, he uses it 12 times. And grace is, for those in Christ, the source of our right standing before God. Grace is a free gift that we have received in Christ. It's unmerited favor through the blood of Jesus. We are made pure, holy. It is because of this grace that we can be confident in our identity as saints. And the concept of grace and mercy, it comes from the character of God. It's not contrary to God's character or who He is. It is the perfect expression of who He is. Exodus 34, 6-7 says that God is merciful and gracious. Hear that word again? Gracious. That is His character. If you want the Old Testament to give you a systematic theology about the character of God, Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is where you go. Here's what it says. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You can have a future hope, and it is based upon God's character, not your ability to remain obedient. 
Now, the reason I bring this up is because we have this bad habit of starting to think that our identity as a saint, God's love for us as his people, is dependent on our ability to remain faithful. See, we can read this phrase at the end of verse 1, that the Ephesians were faithful in Christ Jesus, and we can start to think that our identity and our future are dependent on our ability. But it is not our faithfulness that is the basis for our identity, but God's faithfulness and grace. And here's what I know about you because I know it about myself. We are not always faithful. We are not always obedient. Some of you have a habit of getting angry with the people around you. You can feel the anger build within you, right? You try to be patient. You tell yourself, I'm going to be patient. And you're able to be patient for a while. But eventually, someone does something or says something just at the right time, and then you explode. You yell. You get angry. You say hurtful things. You attack. And afterward, you feel terrible. You don't want to be that type of person. And you just acted in a way that is inconsistent with who you are in Christ. You did not act holy. You did not act faithfully. And whether it is anger or pornography or substances or pride, we all fail to be truly faithful. And here's where the question I asked earlier comes back into view. What do you think comes into the mind of God when he thinks about you? What is your identity? Your sin and disobedience or your faith in Christ and his righteousness? See, God's grace is extended to his people even though we fail over and over again. Our identity is secure in Christ because even when we are not faithful, God remains faithful. We can have a future hope. That grace has saved us. And the same grace that saved us in the past is the same grace that will sanctify us in the present, which means that God will make our everyday lives look more and more like our identity as saints who have been declared holy. God is never done tilling the soil. He is at work so we can have a strong foundation of faith in our life. But it's not just grace that Paul is praying for on behalf of these dear saints. He's also praying for peace. There's a lot we could say about this word, Paul's going to use it eight times throughout this letter. It has this rich biblical language to it and biblical heritage to it. It's more than just freedom from anxiety. It is the reconciliation of all things that were broken and ripped apart. In this world, there's all sorts of discord. Broken relationships are everywhere between us and God and one another, between us and creation and even in ourselves. We feel it often and people want to find peace. They're looking for it. In the region of Ephesus, people sought peace at the temple of Artemis with one of the temple prostitutes. They sought peace through the success of their business by selling idols in the marketplace, or they sought peace through the influence and the approval that they could get from others. And today, people are still longing for peace. They want it. People report being more lonely than they've ever been, more tired than they've ever been, less happy than they've ever been. See, here's the problem. Sometimes the soil that looks good for peace and others promise you will bring peace, turns out to be a lie. The Imperial Hotel in Japan that I mentioned earlier is known for having withstood an earthquake. And that is because when the telegram came to Frank Lloyd Wright, he passed it on to the journalists right away, and they spread the report. And so it is widely believed that the hotel withstood the Great Kanto earthquake. But in fact, that is not the entire story. The building was not undamaged. In fact, parts of it slumped. Stonework fell to the ground. Kitchens were destroyed. It was not the only building that remained standing in Tokyo, and it wasn't the least damaged in the area, but the report spread. 
and that version is still spreading today. In the end, it was actually the foundation that failed. What was thought to be its greatest asset became its greatest failing. The shallow foundation that was meant to float on the mud ended up being an insufficient support, and it began to sink into the mud, which meant that decades later, the hotel had to be torn down. What appeared to be a good foundation turned out to be a lie. See, people want peace, and we need to have hope that in the days to come, peace is possible, but it is not found in the places that so many go looking for it. If you want peace, then let's find it together in Christ as we build the foundations of faith found in the book of Ephesians. Soil conditions change how we set the foundation stones in place. Understanding who we are and where we are will make a massive difference for how we build our faith together. And for those of you who are in Christ, you are a saint. That is your identity. That is the soil into which we're going to build the foundations of faith. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.